out of reverence for his word and also just to kind of direct our attention to it, we like to stand as we hear God speaking to us. We are in John 7, and we'll be reading the first 31 verses. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? So Jesus answers them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, would he do more signs than this man has done? The word of God, thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as always, we are overwhelmed with gratitude that you condescended to speak to us in your word and in the living word of of Jesus as he walked among us. I pray, Lord, that you will speak to us corporately, and yet also to each individual heart here, that we will all hear what you would have us, how you would have us to respond to you and to your word. I ask, Father, that you would 
make me a humble speaker and that you would make us all humble listeners to your word because you oppose the proud but give grace to the humble. So, Lord, we need your grace. So I pray, Father, that the only words that will linger beyond the end of this service are those that come from you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. And now you may be seated. We all love a good story. Everyone does. It's kind of a universal, one of those universal truths. Of course, Hollywood bears this out, and um, we see that our TV, how many channels do we have on the TV these days? I don't think we can even count them all. We love stories. I, I remember seeing Snoopy sitting athwart his doghouse with a Roll Remington typewriter in front of him, and he was trying to type out the great American novel, but he could never get past it was a dark and stormy night. But he understood that people want a story. And I confess, when I was a kid reading that, I tried to do it. Mine didn't come out much better than Snoopy's. But the point is, we love stories, but we also live stories. We are engaged in a grand story that encompasses the whole world. We're engaged in a somewhat smaller story that encompasses our entire lives. And then we are in situational stories when we have experiences and encounters as we go through life. Now, stories, if you ask someone that's a literature major, I wasn't, but they will say that there's three principal characters in a story. You have a protagonist, an antagonist, and an agonist. Uh, that just comes from the Greek for uh, an actor, one who's uh, for the actor, and one who's against the actor. We tend to say it this way, the hero, the villain, and the victim. The problem is when we write our story, we tend to either write us as the victim or the hero. That tends to be where we want to put ourselves. And it's true that we can be situational victims. If I'm walking down the road and someone steals my wallet and mugs me and takes off, well, I'm a victim in that situation. And there's someone that will be a hero. Either he'll get caught or, or someone will come to my aid. But, but in reality, in the grand scheme of things, we are victims of life in a fallen world. And more particularly, we are victims of our own sinfulness. Paul says there's none righteous, no, not one, right? So, so there's no one that is wholly innocent when it comes to the, the, the only court that really matters for eternity, and that's the court, of course, of God. So we aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Make sure that we understand that. We're not sinners because of the sin that we've done. We sin because in our nature, who we are, our, our innermost man is a sinner, is sinful. And so we come to our story, always we need to have that in mind, that we are never a complete innocent bystander to what's going on around us. And our passage today is going to remind us of three things. First, that Jesus is the hero, always, Second, that we don't like that in our nature. We don't like that he's the hero. And third, because we don't like it, Jesus divides. Okay, he, 
Contrary to the way we may sometimes perceive him, Jesus did not come to earth for a kumbaya moment. He did not come that everybody would come together and, and all be in one mind and one accord. He specifically says on his second coming that when he comes, he's going to divide between sheep and goats. And he said, and we'll get to this later, but he said in his first coming, don't think that I came to bring peace, but division. And the reality is, when we have a misplaced understanding of our story and what's happening in our lives, there's always going to be division unless we are aligned with him. And most of people in the world, sadly, are not. The title of the message today, I haven't mentioned that yet, but five responses to an encounter with Jesus Five responses to an encounter with Jesus. About 10 years or so ago, I, saw, I published a book entitled Encountering God, Exploring Five Responses to the Divine Imperative. I was fascinated by the way different people in different cultures respond to the truth of God. And so I saw in Scripture, here's the imperative of God. Acts 17.30, God now commands all men everywhere to repent. That's a commandment, an imperative. And in 1 John 3, 23, this is his commandment that we believe in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So while, I mean, in, in my tradition, I was raised very much uh, focused on an invitation, and there is certainly that element in Scripture, right? Come, all you who are weary and heavy laden. But there is also an underlying imperative. Repent and believe. We are commanded by our creator to repent and believe. And as I went through this passage, as I was preparing this passage, I saw a similar theme coming out in the way that these different groups interact with him. And I wanted to get through that this morning. Just a little bit of context to tell us our background. He says, after this, uh, generally, and unless there's something else going on in Scripture, we're seeing a, a continuation of the story. So we've been studying the feeding of the 5,000. Um, we've been, the long sermon that uh, Stacy just finished at the end of chapter 6 last week. So after all of that, we move into this time, and it's coming up on the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, which would have taken place right about this time, this time of year is about the time for that. And the Feast of Tabernacles looked back to the wilderness experience where uh, the, the people of Israel, when they uh, fled Egypt, they lived in booths or, or tents, tabernacles in the wilderness. And it also looked forward to the time of Christ's coming, of the Messiah coming. And John even alludes to that in uh, chapter 1, verse 14 of his gospel, where he says that uh, the, Lord, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what most of our Bibles say, but literally it says he, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So there's a connection there, but that's, what, that's the context. That's what's going on at this point. But then in the first group here, verses 4 through maybe 10 or so, we have the first response that I want to talk about, and that's the response of doubt. All right, it says his brothers. These aren't his, his uh, actual blood brothers. They're probably um, distant relatives of Mary and Joseph that are around. We don't know specifically. But they are not very um, concerned about Jesus. We just read in verse 1 that it was dangerous for Jesus in Judea. And so they said, why don't you go to Judea? We just heard that it was dangerous for him, and they were not as concerned for his safety. Consider his apostles a little bit later in John 11 
when he says to them, let us go to Judea again, and they say, but the Jews were just trying to stone you. Are you going back? You see the difference? They, the, the, the disciples care about his safety. These people here don't because what they're really saying is prove yourself. They say in verse 4, if you do these things. And then verse 5 tells us they didn't believe. Now, they had seen things, but they're wondering, is it smoke and mirrors? Is it some kind of magic trick? They said, go to Judea. If you really want to do it, go on the big stage and do it there so that everybody can see what you do. But ultimately, it's doubt. And doubt is really kind of a relative of suspicion, isn't it? If I doubt whether you're doing it, I'm kind of suspicious that you're not. And if I'm suspicious of you in our idea, our framework of a story, I'm thinking of you maybe as the bad guy. Maybe you're the one who has an ill intention in this situation. Maybe you're a huckster, a, you know, a, a scam artist. Maybe I don't know, but I'm a little suspicious of what you're doing. Jesus also had this conversation with them. He said, it's not my time, it's your time, or your time is any time, looking at your translation. He's talking about going to the feast. He had other stuff to do in Galilee, and he was going to stay around. But they could go any time because they faced no danger. Look at what he says in verse 7. The world cannot hate you. Why not? Because they're of the world. They're of the world. Compare again this to chapter 15 when he tells his apostles, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So we have these people, his brothers. He says, you can go. The world doesn't hate you. And later he will tell his apostles, the world hates you. See the contrast there again. It makes us think of Jesus' words when he says, who is my, my mother and, and brother and sisters? See, it's not those who share the same DNA, it's those who share the same spirit. And there's a certain sense, certainly for us, too, that that's true, right? We love our, our, our DNA family, our, our physical family, but unless they also have the spirit in them that we have in us as believers, we will not be with them for eternity. Our true connection, our true abiding relationship is within the body of Christ. But, of course, this, this raises the question, or at least it should, does the world hate us? And before you're too quick to answer, I mean, I know a lot of us will say, yeah, the, boy, Christians are getting a bad, bad rap in here. Do they hate us because of Christ, or do they hate us for some other reason? Do they hate us in the same way and for the same reasons that they hated Christ, or for some other reason? Peter called us uh, in his letter, he said, we're a peculiar people, is the word that I remember from the King James. I don't know what it says in the ESV. But that means that we're a separate people, set apart, different. But sometimes we're just peculiar, right? I mean, sometimes we're just, we're just weird for the sake of being weird. Or contentious for the sake of being contentious. And if the world hates us for that, we've missed the point of what Jesus was saying here because he's, he's telling these people the world can't hate them because they don't believe. If we do believe, the world should hate us because we are his and all that that means. I also want to clear something up that uh, sometimes, I'm, I've mentioned this before up here, but 
different translations sometimes take us in slightly different directions. This is one I think is particularly unfortunate in the ESV. If you look at verse 8, he says, I am not going up. And then in verse 10, he says he goes up. Okay, so some people, some, some people that are, are critical of Scripture have said, well, there you go. There's a contradiction. But in the King James, it says, I go not up yet to the feast. And the yet is in the original. I don't know why it's not included here. It makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? To say, I'm not going and then go versus saying, I'm not going yet and then going. Because you see, it's a big deal. He had to go. If he didn't go, you would be lost in your sin, and so would I. Because it's a command of God that all Jewish men go to the Feast of Tabernacles. See, sometimes we miss the active obedience of Christ. We, we see things like the passion of Christ, and, and, and we, we, we think about all that he allowed to be done for him, uh, to him in being beaten and tortured and, and, and killed for our sake. But there needs to be an equal focus on what he did to make that sacrifice of value. And that is that he, he lived in every minute detail of his life in accordance with the law of God, never violating it once. So when God says all men have to go to the Feast of Tabernacles, he had to go. So the text needs to make that clear. Well, that was in first century Judea. What about today? There's many, even in the church, who doubt when they encounter Jesus. And in essence, they tell him, you convince me. And they put the onus on him to convince them of his truth. But that's backwards. If he's the creator and he has given us the divine imperative to repent or believe, we don't get to be in the driver's seat and tell him how to respond. And again, doubt is kind of like suspicion and it puts us into a category of putting him perhaps as the bad guy in some part of this story. The second response is diminishment. To diminish God as if he were just a good man. In verse 12, you'll see that's exactly what they say. It says, some said, he's a good man. That's the truth, but it's not the whole truth. And it's not a new idea. All the way back in Psalm 50, verse 21, God says, you think I'm altogether like you. We tend to think that God is just a bigger, better version of ourselves. Or maybe even a superman. Maybe he's like us, but he's got a cape, you know, or something. And he can fly around and lift up trains or whatever. But we miss the point that he's not a bigger, better version of us. He's not really like us at all. He doesn't give us the option of just calling him a good man. And we see again, I'm, and we, as a matter of fact, Stacy preached on this just a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to belabor this response, except to say, that, again, that was first century Judea. Today, we see the same thing when we had the coexist bumper stickers, okay, or tolerate being the buzzword in the culture, or Jesus, or Buddha, or Oprah. They're all equally good. Okay, th that's the mindset of the culture that we're in now but he doesn't give us that option. Jesus didn't merely offer us a sublime and benevolent code of morality. He is not just good. He is great, for he is God. And when we diminish him, we make him weak. We make him a victim of a world that he wants to change, 
but can't. And that's not who he is. Our third response is that of denial, and that's right in the same verse, verse 12. Some said he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading people astray. So they say he's a good man. The other people say, no, he's not. Not very good. This is the case of many who have heard the gospel and chose a different religion, nonetheless. They don't like all this talk of sin and repentance. The weird stuff Stacy talked about last week. They don't like that. It repels them. They don't like the de-emphasis on works and merit. They like that. They want to get the happy face stamped on their paper at the end of the day. Sorry, I have a kindergartner, and that's the highlight of his life is when he gets the happy face at the end of the day. But we want that. We want to say, I'm earning something. I accomplished something. I worked for it. The last thing we want to say is, there's nothing I can do, especially, especially here in the West, in the United States, our culture, where we want to be able to do everything for ourselves. And today, in the West, we are by all measures, in what is called a post-Christian culture. To the point that Timothy 2, the organization that we are serving with, is even now reaching into post-Christian Europe, the place where, where so much of what we read and study and believe was, was birthed, and the authors were in our tradition here at, at Myrtle Grove, people like Luther and Calvin, all of them spring up out of, out of Europe, and now Europe hardly knows the name of Christ other than as a curse word. And that's the world that we are in today. They're not necessarily, the the vast majority of them are not necessarily hostile to the gospel. They just kind of think we're silly for believing it. And they dismiss Jesus and the Bible as being irrelevant or archaic and not, not really pertinent to our daily lives. And like last week in verse 66, they leave. They just walk away from the Christian faith or from any serious adherence to it because it just doesn't resonate with what they think is important, what they think matters. And so it said in 66, last chapter, many of his disciples left. And again, this response paints Jesus as either being weak or perhaps even deceitful. So when you tell me that I can't do this or I have to do that, do you really have the authority to do that? That's really the challenge here. Well, let's look at the teaching now in the temple. Jesus, our hero, and by the way, it's kind of needs deja vu. I, last Sunday, I wasn't able to uh, watch, at least not live, uh, Stacy's sermon last week. I was on a road trip to North Dakota. That was fun. And so I did not listen to Stacy's sermon until last night at 7 o'clock. And it was just amazing for me to see how God had had tied in a lot of my thoughts to what Stacy's talking about, especially this idea of Jesus as a hero. And as I said, I'm also adding to that that he is a great divider, and I'll explain that in a moment. But so we look at this, it says that the people marveled, in verse 15, at his teaching. Well, first they're marveling because he's untaught, or so they thought. 
Here's a teacher that doesn't have, hasn't been taught. He hasn't been to seminary. Of course, he responds by saying, my teaching isn't mine. And he's calling to mind for any of them who were aware, as most of them would have been, of the covenantal framework in Deuteronomy where God tells Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among the brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. That's what Jesus was claiming for himself. So they marveled that he was teaching, but they also marveled that he actually had something to say. They marveled that he was teaching without having had any training. But then it says, how could he have learning? Because what he was teaching was of substance. And again, it was within this covenantal framework. You'll see, if, uh, if we go down to uh, uh, verse 17, he says, if anyone's will is to do God's will. Well, the will of God is something that would be deep in the minds of the Old Testament uh, Judea, uh, Jude- Jewish people. In other words, not merely mental assent, as Stacy said, but actually changing the path that you're on, a will to, to do God's will. And will, sometimes we get confused about the word, will just means want to. That's really all it means, right? For instance, if you have a last will, it's really my last want to. When I die, I want to leave my money to my family or to my church or to my dog. It's my want to. That's what a will is. And so he's saying you need to align your will, your want to, with what God wants for you. Then verse 18, he asks a probing question, whose glory do you seek? And beloved, sometimes this is an issue where we get, we confuse ourselves, I think, sometimes. Because we have something we're passionate about. Something that, we really, that really gets a fire going in us. And we baptize that. We, we put a veneer of Christ over it so that we can run full strength in, this, in what we're doing, believing or convincing ourselves that we're doing it for the cause of Christ. And sometimes we are. I'm not denying that. But I think there are other times when we have hobby horses or issues that we want to pursue irrespective of what Christ has called us to do and irrespective of God's will in regard to that. And again, does the world hate us? And if so, why? Then in verse 19, has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The law contains the will of God. Jesus declares it, the people break it. So these three themes, the will of God, the glory of God, and the law of God are divisive themes because, first of all, I have to seek the will of God, not my own. I have to seek the glory of God and not my own. I have to obey the law of God and not my idea of what seems right and wrong. And so Jesus is the hero in this story, in the world story, because he declares that he perfectly does the will of the Father. He perfectly seeks the glory of God. And he perfectly keeps the law of God, every jot and tittle. And only in this perfection can he save the world from the villainy of sin, and the death, and the wiles of the desert, devil. And as I said earlier, not only is he the hero, he's also the divider. 
In Luke 12, he says, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there'll be five divided, three against two, two against three. They'll be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. How much clearer could he be? He is telling us that the truth will divide. The truth will divide. Beloved, we see this. He divides light from darkness, sin from obedience, grace from works, truth from lies. As surely as God parted the Red Sea, he parts humanity. And we begin to see that most, most clearly now in our fourth response in verse 20. And this is a response of derision. They say, you have a demon. They said that to the Son of God. You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Can you hear the scorn in their voice? When just two chapters ago in 5.18, said this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. It was no secret that they had been trying to kill him. Blasphemy is far worse than doubting or denying well, that was then, today, and this in our age. It's this visceral reaction to an objective moral law grounded in a moral lawgiver that demands our submission and our surrender. The world acknowledges this big di- division between us and them. Believe me, they do. But they accuse Jesus or the Bible of being the villain for causing it. And they try to paint themselves as the heroes that come to deliver the word, world from antiquated values that we find in Scripture. So that's the fourth response. And it's a pretty radical one. But nothing as radical as the fifth. All the way down in verse 31, many believe. So we had doubt, we had diminishment, we have denial, derision, and now devotion. Accepting Jesus as who he says he is. And it says many believe. There will always be some who believe because God is sovereign. There will always be some who believe. So season every conversation with, uh, with grace, as Paul says in Colossians 4. Because they encountered Jesus in our story because he was walking among them. How do they encounter Jesus today? We are walking among them. We are testifying to the goodness and the grace of God. And for them to believe was a big deal in the culture. We see that in our ministry too. Some places when you believe you have to choose between Christ and your family, between Christ and your community. So it's a radical, radical response to an encounter with Christ. So as we wrap up, this passage shows that Jesus is the hero in the story, but it also shows that we don't like it. We really don't in our flesh. In our flesh, we want to be independent. We want to be on the throne. The real cause of doubting Jesus, diminishing him, denying him, or deriding him is because he speaks the truth about sin and about sinners. In other words, about the things we like in our flesh about us verse 7 he says the world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil so we try every angle every trick we can think of to push him away to silence that truth until he lets us 
as he did in the last chapter in verse 66 when many disciples walked away. You know what you didn't see? You didn't see Jesus say, I'm sorry, come back. I, maybe, maybe I miss, didn't say it the right way. He let them go. So in, in our flesh, in our sinful nature, we try to push him away, and sometimes he lets us. Or we push away until we can't. We can't push anymore. And the surrender just becomes who we are. We accept him and we believe. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a student of history and I love the story of Martin Luther as he is uh, going before the, the council. who uh, the, you know, they, they don't like his teaching and his books and his writings. And they have all of his books on a table in front of him. And they say, look, you have to decide. Are you going to recant all of that? Or are you going to face imprisonment and even death? You know what he said? Can I have a day to think about it? And then we came back the next day. They said, same decision, same choice. Recant or risk death. In history, there's some confusion about what he actually said. The, the, the standard line is that he said, here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. But even if he did say that, I kind of think he probably said it like this. Here I stand. I can't do otherwise. Because, beloved, there's a cost to following Christ. There's a cross to bear when we follow Christ. And don't, don't think that it's a decision that people can make easily. Paul even talked about his own weakness and his own and we think of him as the, the, the preeminent example of a Christian. And, and Peter here in, uh, in chapter 6 said to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You see, I think we have to realize that, that just like Luther, just like Peter, we're going to come to this from a position that says, I don't know what you're, gonna, what you're asking of me. I don't know where you plan to take me. I don't know what the final cost is going to be for this. But here I stand. I can do no other. To whom else can we go? You are the Christ. That has to be what moves us. To move into our radical response away from everything that our flesh is trying to do. Every alternative. Stacy said last week that that's what finally happens to a true disciple. They realize there is no alternative. There's no plan B. So Jesus still asks, as he did of Peter in Matthew, who do you say that I am? And he says that, asks that of everyone sitting in this room and everyone who will watch online, who do you say that he is? And our ultimate answer will determine our ultimate destiny. You can doubt him, you can diminish him, you can deny him, you can deride him, or you can fall on your knees in devotion to him. Who do you say that he is? Let's pray. Father, we have talked and recent weeks and today about some of just the hard sayings and the, the reality that what you call us to is radically different from where we want to go in our flesh. 
And yet, by the power of your spirit, you enable all who place faith in Christ to persevere to the end. Thank you. Praise you for that, Father. That it's not in our strength. Once we, once we acknowledge the cost, once we declare that you are God, it doesn't depend on us. In fact, declaring that you're God doesn't depend on us. You even give us our faith. So I pray, Lord, today that you'll give faith to those who don't have faith in Jesus yet. And I pray for those of us who do that you will strengthen it, that day by day we will grow stronger in our trust and faith in Christ so that we can, we can walk on in this, this path that you have for us regardless of what's lying down the road for us. May our response to you always be, you are ours. Mine and I and yours. And now, Father, as we turn to the table of communion, may this visible representation of the gospel, this visible picture of your body and blood, Father, may it nourish our spirits, strengthen, strengthen our resolve, and empower us to walk with you this day and each day going forward. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.